Hello and welcome to the Violet Podcast. This week, we pretend that the Harry and Meghan interview on Oprah is still news and use it to discuss whether or not there is any excuse for Britain to still have a monarchy in the 21st century. It's our most conversational episode to date and probably our most controversial. So if you do have any thoughts or comments on it, other than about Jerome's consistently awful pronunciation of the word eligible, please do get in contact with us. You can email us at contact.theviolet at gmail.com. You can tweet to us at underscore theviolet underscore, or you can visit the website www.theviolet.net. Thanks for listening. So many of our listeners will probably have have watched or will have heard of the Harry and Meghan interview on Oprah a few weeks ago. Uh, And that raised a lot of questions in British political discourse about the monarchy, whether the monarchy is a positive force in British politics and society, uh, what it's done to Harry and Meghan, whether it should exist, what the pros and cons of it are. And what we want to discuss today is more generally the concept of monarchy in Britain and whether uh, it should be abolished, whether it should be retained from a general perspective, regardless of the specifics of the Harry and Meghan issue. I'd actually slightly disagree with that in that most of the um, comment that I've seen about it is not doing that. Most of the comment I've seen about it is focusing on the sort of personal aspect like a playground feud and who's right and who's wrong and who said what and what they might have meant um, and missing the broader point that we want to get into of what this means um, or not not what this particular event means but what this particular event tells us about a very important institution in the country and how it operates and how it should operate or perhaps shouldn't. As opposed to the institution on a personal level. Absolutely. But I guess the reason that it's exploded in the news for that reason is because, you know, people are drawn to things on a personal emotive level. That's how people operate. That's what people access. That's what people understand. That's what people like to read about. Um, and then, you know, often can't see, can't see the forest for the, for the trees. I know. And if they want to see the forest for the trees, then they come and listen to the violet. Which is more of a flower part. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the the kind of fundamental argument that most people would put forwards for the monarchy is a patriotic one. Along the lines of traditional or or one-nation conservatism, the idea that people need something uh, on a a primal emotional level, that they're not driven necessarily by reason, by rationality, but that they're driven by a need to belong to something, that human beings are psychologically flawed in a way Uh, and that they need to be part of a whole to have meaning. And in Britain, the argument would be that this is provided by the monarchy. The monarchy is something which is a tradition. It provides continuity. It binds together the past, the present, and the future. It's something that people can and should look up to as a symbol of unity for the nation, and as something which represents the nation on a symbolic, emotional level, not necessarily a rational one. And that's really a few arguments sort of rolled into one. So I'll try and sort of disentangle them, disentangle them, break them apart. The first one you mentioned, um, or the first words that often gets thrown around when you start talking about the monarchy, is tradition. And it's an important 
point to make, I think, in thinking about politics and social sciences generally, not just in the case of the monarchy, that tradition in and of itself counts for nothing. It's a nice word that people like to throw around to support things, but all it means is that something has been done for a very long time. And that in itself is of no value. The fact that people used to do the thing that I do hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago or how long ago it was is in itself no argument as to you know whether something is good or bad. And when we're analysing political institutions and um, ways in which our politics work and ways in which we think about the world, we need to do it on an objective basis of whether something is good or bad and if something has been around for a very long time, we should be constantly reevaluating it and seeing if it's still relevant to the modern world. And if it is, then fantastic, keep it. But if it's not, we should be getting rid of it. And when you dig down into what tradition means, there is no reason why tradition is a valid uh, defence of anything. To, to kind of continue disentangling that broader overarching point and uh, considering the sub-points about patriotism and national unity. Uh, I think there are many conservatives who would argue those things are important and that we do need national unity and we do need a sense of belonging to some collective whole and that we should, for for want of a better phrase, love our country uh, and have some loyalty towards it. Um, I will in a second say why I, I don't agree with those things, but I think, first of all, it's important to note, even if you do believe there is a need for national unity and a need for patriotism, that does not necessitate a monarchy. There are plenty of people in plenty of countries all over the world who are patriotic and love their country and are loyal to their country, even though their country doesn't have a monarchy. There are plenty of ways to create national unity and have uh, some kind of loyalty to uh, values and systems, whether that be the welfare state, for example, or anything else, without having a monarchy. Just to add to that, it's worth noting that in some cases, and I'm thinking of the French here, beheading the monarch is actually a, a proud part of the sort of national patriotic history of being French. Um, so, yeah, we can first of all point out it is possible to have patriotism and national unity without a monarchy. Uh, secondly, I would argue that you don't necessarily need patriotism and you don't necessarily need a national commitment to a visible physical, tangible thing uh, in order for a country to be functional. I would say that allegiance to democracy uh, as a set of principles is far more important than allegiance to any person uh, or structure. Yeah, and what what um, people view as defining their nation and what people view as the important parts of, of their nationality that holds them together and what they're proud of those people who are proud of their national identity changes over time. And to use a British example, um, and actually one that's quite relevant, and we may well do another podcast episode on, um, a lot of older British people are still proud of the empire uh, and the fact that we had an empire. And certainly if you go back a few years, most British people would be proud of the fact that Britain was champion of the slave trade and ruler of quarter of the world, etc., etc. Whereas now, a lot of people, certainly a lot of younger Britons, um, view that history, and I should make clear that in both of our opinions, quite rightly view that history um, with a great deal of shame. And to, to be fair, I don't think we can even entirely separate it from this discussion about monarchy, because 
you know, the symbols, the trappings of monarchy are very much tied up with empire. Um, the, the awards that are given out, commander of the British Empire, order of the British Empire, uh, member of the British Empire, the fact that so many of the crown jewels and the visible symbols of monarchy are taken from South Africa, from, from India, from all over the world. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure we'll come back to it later in this podcast, but we can't split monarchy apart from empire uh, either. Yeah. Um, to sort of finish off the point I was making there, I'll make it clear. Um, people who are worried that if we didn't have monarchy anymore, we wouldn't have a sense of Britishness. Well, the, the sense of what is British changes over time. And I'm sure, I don't actually have an example off the top of my head, but I'm sure lots of people made the same argument uh, in the 20th century when Britain was dismantling its empire that without an empire there would be no sense of Britishness and the British nation would fall apart and it was the thing that we gathered round and that united us all in our pride. The same arguments that are applied, that you've just put forward there, applying to the monarchy has been applied to lots of other things in the past and some of those things unfortunately are still with us, some of those have fallen apart but hey, Britain's still here, it still functions. Uh, a second argument which I'll, I'll, I'll put forward as my role as in my role as the, uh, the resident history expert, uh, even though this is not my area of expertise, is the, the notion that republicanism has already been tried in Britain. Uh, it's been tried, it's been tested, and it has failed horrendously. Um, and yes, it is true that republicanism has existed in Britain before, uh, very briefly in the aftermath of the English Civil War, in the aftermath of Parliament's uh, victory over the royalist faction and the execution of King Charles, uh, Oliver Cromwell um, was first made leader of the country as leader of parliament and then assumed dictatorial powers and converted England from a monarchy into a commonwealth. Um, to put it mildly, he was not a uh, particularly good leader. Uh, he was a religious fanatic. Um, he widely suppressed civil liberties, despite his argument that the reason for the rebellion against the crown was the crown suppression of of civil liberties um, and eventually that that commonwealth fell apart with his son and the monarchy was restored as a constitutional monarchy and this argument quite frankly is laughable on several levels um, the simplest way to put it down is simply to say that this was this was 400 years ago and a lot of things have changed since then um, to expand on that the most important thing to say is that the democracy in air quotes, um, of the English Civil War was not in any uh, meaningful way by modern terms democracy. Again, I don't know the exact number, but the proportion of people that actually had any sort of vote um, in in the leader at that time was, was pathetic. I know I know in the build-up to the 1832 Reform Act, it was about 2% of the, of the population that was enfranchised. So Presumably lower than that in the 1600s. Yes, absolutely. So it's, it's not a democracy by, by any stretch of the imagination. But perhaps the most important point, and this is a point we're going to come back to throughout the episode, is that a system is uh, has its own merits and its own drawbacks, any political system. And what a lot of people tend to do is focus on the... Uh, vices and virtues of particular people within the system and not think about the system as a whole. So the fact that the last time the head of state of England was not the monarch, uh, he was a terrible head of state, does not mean that all non-monarchs are terrible heads of state. And 
just as we can look back over the short Republican history of England and say, wow, those leaders were terrible, we can equally look back and point out a lot of terrible monarchs 99% of, of British monarchs and say they were terrible people who did terrible things as well a, a third argument which is often put forwards in favour of the monarchy is the idea that uh, regardless of symbolic values or uh, arguments about meritocracy or arguments about patriotism it is of net economic benefit to the country uh, and that it brings in tourists from, from around the world uh, and that the, those tourists spend and everyone loves the royal family uh, and everyone buys merchandise and, you know, cheap knockoff mugs with the Queen's face on it uh, and everyone waves flags around and basically the monarchy brings in tourism revenue for the country. Um, the the argument that the monarchy uh, brings in money is is an interesting one in, it, in that it shows how ludicrously complex and convoluted everything to do with the monarchy and all the rules around the monarchy in this country are because it's also an argument put forward by republicans that um the royal family costs the country money and actually would be economically better off without it and you would think that this argument because it's not an argument about sort of morality values values you would have thought that someone somewhere could calculate a number and it's either positive or negative. Um, but it's it's in no way that simple. So the monarchy is funded by an extraordinary number of different things. Um, it's funded by partly through their own incomes, um, but mostly through the fact that the royal family owns an astonishing amount of land and real estate um, throughout the country. Uh, and they earn income on their own private holdings, but also from something called the Crown Estate. Um, and the Crown Estate is a weird sort of semi-public, semi-private body that manages those estates uh, on behalf of the royal family and then pays 75% of the income uh, from those estates to the treasury and 25% to the royal family. Um, there are also loads of other loopholes, like the royal family doesn't have to pay tax. They do voluntarily pay some taxes, but don't pay others. It's all very confusing. Um, but but altogether, the royal family um, has been bestowed over hundreds and hundreds of years an extraordinary amount of the country um, and earns tax-free money off of that that could easily be used for other means, could be privately owned by someone else who's going to use it, could pay tax on it, or could be owned by the government, or could be put to some sort of other use. And I'm not sure whether this is technically part of the Crown Estate, but you also have the Duchy of Cornwall and the Duchy of Lancaster, which certain members of the royal family also extract money from. So Cornwall is Charles's, isn't it? Yeah. And there's a weird rule in Cornwall, I'm not sure if it's still the case, but if property is not explicitly given to someone in a will, it reverts to the Duchy of Cornwall and Charles basically gets it if you haven't <laughs> awarded it to someone in a will. Um, uh, yeah, so that's that's just really weird and archaic. Yeah, I, I, I didn't see that. I did see in my research for this that it's it's only actually about 2% of Cornwall is owned by the Duchy of Cornwall um, because the land owned by the Duchy of Cornwall and the Duchy of Lancaster is now up and down the country and doesn't actually... Um, match up nicely with the counties after which they're named. Anyway, the point is that there there are some very unsensible estimates of how much the royal family 
costs the taxpayer every year, um, but it's very hard to put a number on it at the top. A sensible estimate, in my opinion, would be somewhere in the range of 200 to 400 million pounds a year um, that is costed to the taxpayer, either in terms of direct payments to the royal family or um, taxes that the royal family does not pay. The last complication on this is that there are other costs to the royal family, such as um, policing and safety to events um, to do with the royal family, which are difficult to measure, um, but go into that sort of debate about tourism and whether the economy as a whole benefits from the royal family. On that question, we don't really have uh, an answer. It's very difficult to come to an answer. But personally, I would point to the royal palaces in France and in Austria and in Russia, which are some of, or the imperial palace in, in China, which are some of the most visited landmarks in the world, which draw millions of visitors. Um, just because the royal family are alive and are still part of the royal family does not mean that they bring in any tourism. I don't think there's anyone who comes to Britain to see the royal family. Because you can't see them. Because you can't see them, right? <laughs> you can't see them. Has anyone here actually met the royal family? Has anyone listening to this actually met the royal family? You can go and stand in front of Buckingham Palace, great, but actually if Buckingham Palace were a museum to the monarchy that we used to have in this country, and you could go more. in, yeah. a lot more people would come and visit it and go in. Um, and again, the, the, and the parallel I would draw is Versailles in Paris, is one of the most visited places in the whole world. And again, I do think that was a proposal um, a few years back to open parts of Buckingham Palace uh, more widely to the public, and it was rejected by the royal family, yeah. which was you know, an opportunity to make more money from tourism. Yeah. And the other thing I should say is it's not just Buckingham Palace, of course. It's Balmoral, it's Windsor Castle, it's Sandringham House. It's the ridiculous quantity of, of massive mansions that no one can go in because this ludicrously privileged family is sort of granted them and guarded them by law. So I guess the economic <laughs> argument falls apart to summarise that. Um, I think one one other argument, which is a more difficult one to, to dispel or counter-argue, is the idea that over time the British monarchy has gradually evolved in a way that, say, the French monarchy didn't. The French monarchy very jealously guarded its powers uh, ran headlong into a constitutional crisis uh, and was therefore quite violently, sharply abolished uh, and has remained so... Oh, actually, no, it hasn't remained so. It's been back and forth a lot. But uh, currently, France does not have a monarchy because uh, the monarchy overextended its powers. Whereas in Britain, uh, successive monarchs or successive waves or dynasties of monarchs uh, agreed voluntarily to cede parts of their political power to parliament, to uh, elected bodies, so that the monarch now is no more than a symbolic figurehead, a constitutional monarch with no real political power, and therefore there is no argument to abolish it from the perspective of increasing democracy in the country, because it does simply it simply does not have a political role. So the argument goes. Yeah, and the the sort of the background that we need to do before we can answer this question really is to think about what um, what technically can the monarch do? What powers are available to the queen? And then the sort of the second part of that question is to say, well, which of those powers does she actually exercise, and which does she not? 
And if you thought that my attempt to simplify the situation <laughs> with the royal finances was complicated, the rules, the, the constitutional rules around what the Queen can and can't do are unbelievable. They are, and, and I'll, I'll do my best to simplify them. Um, the Queen has, uh, or the King, who, whoever the monarch is, has a huge range of what are called royal prerogatives or royal prerogative powers. Um, and generally today, these are exercised by the Prime Minister rather than by the Queen, even though the Queen may still do some of these uh, symbolically, usually, or nearly always on the advice of the Prime Minister or the elected government. The main prerogative powers are firstly to prorogue Parliament, uh, which means to, to temporarily suspend Parliament. Um, another prerogative power is to grant or deny royal assent to legislation. So any law which passes through the House of Commons and the House of Lords must also then be signed off by the monarch. Uh, the Queen has not exercised the royal veto, or the monarch has not exercised the royal veto, blocking legislation at that stage since 1707, uh, which I believe was something to do with the Acts of Union and Scotland having its own army. Um, the monarch also doles out honours or titles. Uh, they appoint ministers or civil servants, but again on the advice of the Prime Minister. They also have general authority for regulating the civil service, issuing passports, declaring war, making peace, and signing foreign treaties. Again, all of these are now generally done by the Prime Minister on behalf of the Queen rather than by the Queen or the monarch themselves. But these are all still technically constitutional powers that the monarch possesses. Um, one of the others that I find quite strange is the weekly meeting that the monarch has with the Prime Minister, which is completely off record and no one knows yeah. what conversations they have and what influence the monarch can wield there. Which is not technically a prerogative power, but it's basically the way by which the royal prerogative of the monarch is connected to the practical exercise of those powers by the prime minister. Exactly. And that's that's slightly more worrying to me, simply because with something like the power of royal assent, um, it's blatantly obvious when the monarch has used that power and when they haven't. Right? Um, we know that no monarch has used, uh, no monarch has denied royal assent to legislation since 1707 uh, because it would have been it would have been news. We would all have been able to tell, but we have no idea what monarchs and prime ministers have been discussing, what influence monarchs might have had over prime ministers um, throughout history, because those meetings are deliberately not recorded. Well, interestingly, we kind of do, because in 2013, there was a big legal struggle and the government did try to keep this quiet, but it was ruled that it had to be released. Uh, and in 2013, um, papers prepared by cabinet office lawyers showed that at least 39 bills had been influenced or blocked uh, by senior royals before they had got to the stage of being discussed in parliament. Um, the, the one that springs to mind is in 1999, uh, there was there were discussions about legislation uh, to move the the right for military action in Iraq from a royal prerogative to Parliament, uh, and that was blocked by the by the monarchy before it even got to the discussion stage. Um, I know that Charles as well has blocked several pieces of legislation relating to his powers over the Duchy of Cornwall. So it's not every single piece of legislation the monarchy doesn't 
weigh in on you know every little traffic law and tax law in the country. Uh, but it's not the case that they are purely ceremonial. They have in the past weighed in uh, before legislation has even reached the floor of the House. Something we mentioned at the beginning, but I think it's important to raise here again, is that we should um, look at political systems from the point of view of the system and not the individual. And so a lot of people, a lot of listeners might be thinking at this point, well, you know, why should we care about the fact that the Queen technically has the right to deny royal assent? She never has, and she probably never will. It's been a rather strange turn for her to get to, what is she, 97 now? And suddenly decides she's going to do it. Very old, but she looks better than Philip. <laughs> she does. <laughs> um, but the point is, when we're evaluating political systems, we need to look at the system uh, and judge uh, whether that is a good system. We don't know throughout history who we're going to have as our monarchs. We don't know what they're going to be like. And so it may well be the case, as I said before, we don't know the full extent, but it may well be the case that Queen Elizabeth has been a very responsible monarch, has had generally quite um, sort of beneficent... Is that a word? I think it is. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, Has had generally quite a beneficent outlook and has uh, had a positive impact on policy and has not overstepped the mark and not used any of the powers that by uh, sort of by tacit agreement she doesn't use. But that's not necessarily going to be true of Charles or William or I can't remember the name of the kids, but whoever comes next. Well, in fact, there are quite a lot of concerns over Charles because uh, the monarchy is by convention as in its role as a constitutional monarchy, supposed to be very politically neutral. And Charles is, uh, is infamous for not being very politically neutral and very publicly stating his positions uh, on environmentalism, for example, or animal rights. And I know he said things about Tibet before, I can't remember quite what. Uh, there was a scandal in the past about the black spider letters where he'd been uh, communicating with, with ministers and his scrawly handwriting uh, were refer- was referred to as, as black spiders. Uh, giving the name of the scandal. Um, so it's it's really much more of a concern with Charles, even if you think that Elizabeth has been a responsible, neutral, constitutional monarch. Uh, Charles is, or Charles looks like a person who would get much more involved in politics and challenge these conventional, unspoken boundaries. And again, um, even, the, even with Charles, it does seem that his two sort of major avenues that he cares about are blocking any new tower blocks in Chelsea from being built and uh, pushing homeopathy. So to be fair, the second one, the first one there is probably going to continue to drive up rents in London. And the second one is probably going to kill a few people. Um, But he could do a lot worse, right? He could, he could have um, really quite evil policy um, sort of policy interests. But if we're planning on having the monarchy permanently, we don't just need to worry about the next heir. We need to worry about the heir after that, and after that, and after that, and after that. And the whole, the sort of the fundamental flaw with monarchy as a system, there are many, but one of the fundamental flaws of monarchy as a system is you don't get to choose who your head of state is. Yeah. Um, so I guess again, returning to that to that central point, whenever you're evaluating a a system, you can't assume that the people within it will be you know like perfect angelic beings who will do everything as best as possible you have to assume that the people within that system will be the worst people possible and consider whether whether that system would be appropriate whether it would be able to restrain 
the worst impulses of those people and contain the ill effects. And it's an interesting contradiction in public opinion of the monarchy, which we'll talk about in more detail in a minute, that despite the fact that the majority of Britons support uh, the monarchy and want the monarchy to continue as an institution, um, 37%, I'm taking this for those that care from an October 2020 YouGov poll, 37% of Britons, they estimate, um, do think Charles should succeed Elizabeth when she dies. 41% would prefer William to do so and think William should be uh, made monarch after Elizabeth's death. And of course, the whole point of monarchy is you don't get to choose. Right. So, well, I guess in the case of Charles, that's uh, that's an interesting issue, and I'm not quite sure where the constitution or what the constitution says on this, but because he's married a divorcee, I'm not sure whether he's technically eligible for the throne or how that works. Eligible. Eligible, I forgot to say. <laughs> anyway, I'm not quite sure how that works um, because I, I know that in the past, uh, monarchs have had to abdicate for wanting to marry someone who's been divorced. As far as I know, that has been changed, and Charles right. is the heir. Right. Okay, fair um, enough. Makes yeah. sense. But so, to be fair, his his mum is you know pretty old at this point, so I don't think he's going to have long on the throne if he gets there. He's not, but it is interesting that a lot of people um, think there should be a system where they don't get to choose the monarch, mm. but then want to choose the monarch. Yeah. Um, I do think that leads to perhaps the most serious argument or or the hardest to dispel argument in favour of the monarchy, which, as you said, is that most people in the country do support the monarchy. Uh, An Ipsos Mori poll uh, showed that over the last 20 years there has been pretty consistent support for the monarchy. Uh, 75% uh, would vote to keep it, Uh, 15 to 20% would support a republic, 5 to 10% didn't know. And since then, uh, that poll in 2020, um, support seems to have cooled slightly. Uh, there is now about 60% support uh, for the monarchy, 25% support for a republic, and 15% of people that don't know. But by some distance, support for the monarchy is the thing uh, when you poll the British public that has the highest level of support. Um, and so it seems very difficult to argue for an abolition of the monarchy to make a more democratic system if, you know, in a democratic vote, most people would support the institution. It does. And so we should be clear about what we're saying here or, or, or what I believe here, which is that were I made prime minister tomorrow, um, God save us all, but were I made prime minister tomorrow, I wouldn't abolish the monarchy because the vast majority of people don't want that to happen. And in that sense, I suppose it would be undemocratic in the short term. But the point is that in, in a democratic country, we should have debates and discussions about um, what we think is the right thing to do, what we think is the right policy to have. And just because a majority disagrees with us or a majority agrees on something uh, doesn't mean that that is necessarily the right thing to do and that we shouldn't put forward arguments counter to the majority opinion. And majority opinions change over time. Right, and in, in the spirit of, of free speech as espoused by the Conservative government, there should not be sacred cows in British politics. Everything, as they say, should be up for debate and challenge, and there shouldn't be things which are off-limits because they are untouchable and they are just unquestionable facets of British life. Exactly, and there are a lot of, a lot of uh, freedoms that we have now um, that 
are considered pretty sacred and that everyone or vast majority of people support, which it wasn't the case in the past. So uh, to take a more recent example, uh, same-sex marriage is now supported by the vast majority of the British public, but only 20 or 30 years ago it was the opposite. Um, not just sort of 50-50, but actively a majority didn't support it, thought it was a, a bad idea. Um, and the point I'm trying to make is simply just because the majority of some people believe something doesn't mean it's true. It does mean, though, that there is something of a practical obstacle um, to the abolition of the monarchy and to republicanism, which is because it is so popular, it is impossible at the present moment to envisage any political, any major political party endorsing the position of republicanism. It would be, I think, electoral suicide. So even though this is what we're arguing as an ideal scenario in in the real world, we might make this argument, but it seems to be something that will be, if it happens, the abolition of the monarchy some decades away. And we do we do have some evidence for that. I mean, the tabloids are big fans of the monarchy. Uh, the Daily Mail does appear to just be sort of a, the fanfare that follows around in front of Queen Elizabeth nowadays. Um, and... The only sort of high-profile uh, politician that I can think of in recent years who was um, <laughs> out, I guess, as a Republican um, was uh, Jeremy Corbyn, and he was absolutely taken to the cleaners for it by the by the tabloids. And I guess related to this uh, to this argument in support of the monarchy is the idea that well, if we get rid of it, what do we replace it with? And that's a whole other debate about what exact kind of constitutional structure we would want to have in the absence of a monarchy. But the obvious answer would simply be replace them with a head of state, either appointed or uh, elected, as every other republic in the world does. Yeah, and that fits into the sort of broader narrative of this, that for sort of my personal opinion on this is, I don't support the monarchy, I don't think a monarchy is a very good idea. Um, and I think if we sort of take a step back and forget that it's our country we're talking about and our traditions we talk about, we wouldn't, nobody would recommend the British constitutional system to any other country. Um, if you were starting a country from scratch and trying to think of the best way to, to design it, this would absolutely not be what you came up with. Um, but that doesn't mean when I say I support abolishing the monarchy that we should do it tomorrow because. It's, we, we do need to bring people round to that way of thinking before we do it, and we do need to plan for something to, to come after and replace it. Yeah, so both based on principle that you shouldn't make changes to the country which people do not democratically consent to, and yet yeah, based on practice that you need to figure out the replacement first um, and and not just take the, uh, the kind of Bolsonaro, Modi, Donald Trump stance of trashing something and then figuring out what to replace it with a few months down the line. Absolutely. So all of the things we've talked about so far have been uh, arguments for the monarchy and counter-arguments uh, against those. But we haven't really put anything forward for republicanism itself. We haven't put forward the advantages of a truly democratic system. Um, we've only sort of taken down the arguments for a monarchy. And I guess the first thing to talk about is simply... Um, why, and I know this is a whole other uh, podcast and we can't get too far into this, but why democracy is a good thing and why having elected officials, not uh, hereditary, 
hereditarily chosen officials, whatever the word there is, yeah. uh, is a good thing. And as we've said, this is a potential rabbit hole about the reasons why democratic norms are important. Um, but I'll try to keep it as focused as possible on democracy and the specific issue of monarchy. The first reason that democracy is important is because it enables you to remove bad leaders and it enables you to hold your representatives to account. If you think that they are doing a good job, you can re-elect them and reward them with another however many years it is in that position. If you feel that they've failed in, your, in their promises, that they no longer represent you, that they're no longer doing a good job, you can vote them out of office. And if a monarchy is hereditary, we lose the ability to hold our leaders to democratic account. The second reason why we, you know, we should move towards a republic and that this better reflects the UK's democratic norms is that an elected head of state, regardless of whether that is the same as the head of government, as in the US president, uh, or whether that is a separate official, as in Singapore, which both has a prime minister as head of government uh, and a separate president as a ceremonial head of state, um, they should be elected in a way that is more reflective of society. And again, that everyone should be able to have a say in who the leader of the country is. Now, we may run into positions where the head of state is not someone that you personally approve of, but because they have been democratically elected, that is someone we know that the majority of the country has consented to. So we may say, for example, that we don't think Boris, or you personally may dislike Boris Johnson, um, but Boris Johnson is a reflection of Britain. That's who most people in Britain voted for. And if you have an issue with Boris Johnson, uh, that's not necessarily because he as an individual is unrepresentative. That's because you, rightly or wrongly, disagree with the majority of Britons in terms of what they believe and what they value. And the final element of this argument for democratic norms and republicanism is that of fairness and equality and egalitarianism and the idea that in modern Britain, which we claim to be a meritocracy, where it's hard work and ability that gets you to the top, not who you're descended from, monarchy is the antithesis to that. It is like a shining, glaring, gold and diamond studded symbol that who your parents are does really matter. That's what gets you to the top. That's what puts you in a position of power and authority. And really, if we are to fully embrace the argument that modern Britain is a democratic and meritocratic country, then those top positions, the head of state, uh, should be decided by democratic means. And I think one of the things that a lot of people realised watching the Harry and Meghan interview, um, which they might not have might not have struck home before, is uh, that that kind of goes both ways. Because one of the things Harry spoke about was how um, being part of the royal family, being effectively a sort of sub-head of state, um, is quite a... not demanding, but quite a stressful job and uh, puts a lot of sort of restrictions on what you can and can't do, as well as putting an extraordinary amount of money in your pocket. Um, And that he didn't choose that. And of course, that uh, helps people think about what you just said, that um, the person who is best for that role in the country um, may not be chosen by an election, but we've got more chance of putting them in that role if we have elections and we have regular elections than if we just 
arbitrarily assign it to the child of the last person. Right, and and even though this is obviously an issue which only affects a very small number of people in the country, it's clear that people raised in the royal family or children raised in the royal family have very abnormal childhoods. Um, And in many ways, that is psychologically damaging to them. Um, Again, doesn't really affect that many people, but it's worth noting that these very high-profile, stressful, in-the-public-eye you know, roles are not for everyone. Yeah. And they should really be open to the people that want them uh, rather than the people that are thrust into them by familial duty. I feel, I feel obliged to point out that Dumbledore would disagree with you there. But <laughs> One of the particular quirks of the British monarchy, which isn't necessarily an argument you can use uh, for republicanism in other countries, is that the British monarch is also not just the head of state, but the head of the national religion, the state religion, uh, Anglicanism, the Church of England, and that if Britain were to become a, or if Britain wanted to become a truly secular state with no particular uh, religious affiliation of the government, then the monarch would have to choose between being head of state and being head of the Church of England. They couldn't be both. Uh, and, and again, it seems like that we say this very often in the podcast. This is something that will take an, another entire podcast or article to explain. Um, but we do also believe that being a secular state should be the general model for all states and all political systems worldwide. I guess for similar reasons of principle to the idea that we should be a uh, you know a meritocratic democracy, um, that the state should reflect everyone and not just uh, particular or sectional interests. And, you know, if nowhere near the majority of people in the country are members of the Church of England or attend church services, that should play no part in the running of the country, other than how people express themselves at the ballot box. And this is actually an issue that may well hit the news uh, in the future. Uh, in the near future, we can we can turn around and stop being reactive and start predicting <laughs> the news, um, because the census has obviously just happened and only happens every 10 years. And there have been massive drops in the number of people reporting themselves as Protestant uh, in the last two censuses uh, since the religion question was brought in. And it is likely, it's not necessarily going to happen, uh, but it is likely that when the results of this census come out, uh, they will find that uh, Protestantism is no longer the plurality, the largest religious group in this country. no religious affiliation is the largest group in this country. Uh, and that may well then Creep, trigger... Creeping atheism. Creeping atheism. <laughs> that may well... You, ne- you never expect it. Um, that may well uh, trigger another debate about, about the monarchy and the benefits of it and disestablishment. So to, to wrap up the key points from this discussion, um, the argument for monarchy is generally based on an appeal to tradition, Uh, which is a logical fallacy, and we don't think it really stands up to scrutiny. Uh, The argument that the the monarchy is of net economic benefit is also a dubious one. We do think that the argument for republicanism is a lot stronger in that it reflects uh, the idea of a democratic, pluralistic, uh, meritocratic, modern Britain. But ultimately, we do not think that this is an issue which should be decided by violence, we're not advocating whipping out the guillotine anytime soon. We do think that this is something which should be decided through democratic debate and discussion and convincing people that republicanism is a viable and sensible cause. 
Because democracy is not just about institutions. It's not just about elections. It's about public debate and norms. And when people feel that norms are not correct, they should voice their opinions. They should discuss it. Uh, and through debate and consensus, we should uh, evolve the norms that society abides by. Uh, and on that note, if you do disagree with us and you do want to debate, uh, and you you are very you are a very strong supporter of the monarchy, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, we welcome any criticisms, questions, or suggestions for future content. You can contact us at theviolet.net. You can contact us on Twitter at at underscore the violet underscore, or you can email us at contact.theviolet at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in next week.